This is the Enlisted Podcast, episode number one with Sergeant Ryan Flores, United States Marine Corps. A few weeks after establishing Camp Howard on North Island in San Diego, Colonel Joseph Pendleton on September 6, 1914, was the guest speaker in the U.S. Grant Hotel in downtown San Diego. The subject of his speech was San Diego, an ideal location for a permanent Marine Corps base. The drive behind his lecture was the unsatisfactory conditions and the less than convenient location of his men and staff at Camp Howard. At this time, Colonel Pendleton wrote to the Commandant of the Marine Corps at Washington, D.C. about the deplorable conditions at Camp Howard and presented the idea of a possible establishment of a permanent Marine Corps base in San Diego. The Navy General Board approved the establishment of the base on January 8, 1916. On March 1, 1924, the base has been developed as a result of the vision of efforts of General Pendleton became official, the Marine Corps Base San Diego, and would be known by that name for the next 24 years. On January 1, 1948, Marine Corps Base San Diego was officially renamed Marine Corps Recruit Depot San Diego. The recruit training command grew from three to eight battalions to handle the troop requirements for the Korean War. And from that moment, the Recruit Depot San Diego took people from the center of the nation to the west coast and going from the center of the nation to the east coast went to Paris Island. And joining me today is Sergeant Ryan Flores, who went to Marine Corps San Diego. And I, of course, I'm going to throw a little bit of a dig at him for uh, going to San Diego, what we call Hollywood Marines, uh, anybody who knows that. Uh, welcome to the Enlisted Podcast. Um, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Hi, right, thank you. Thank you for inviting me and uh, and, and let me come on here. So, yeah, I, uh, 1997, I ended up at the depot in San Diego, uh, Marine Corps Recruit Depot. And, uh, well, the rest is, is, a, is about to be unfolded here with you. Yeah. Now, going to uh, San Diego, you guys got nicer weather. Uh, but I hear a rumor that while you're stationed there, you watch people take off from the airfield. Is that accurate? You could actually see people taking off and think about how nice it would be to go home? The training area of the depot is perimeter fence, borders the airfield for the San Diego Limburg field. So every aircraft that takes off throughout the day is literally right behind us as we're training, uh, bayonet training. Uh, running the O courses, everything is right there behind us. So on a day-to-day -day basis, even from the squad base, you could see the aircraft. Uh, well, I guess depending on whether you were on the port side or the, the starboard side, you could see the aircraft taking off from the squad bay. So you're, um, I guess, the stress levels that you had to deal with there, you could watch people take off. And, you know, did you ever think, uh, you know, maybe you'd escape, run across to the airfield, try to get a ticket out of there when you were there? I think a lot of us had that idea. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were told in Paris Island that if you try to escape, you will die trying thanks to the uh, swamp that was surrounding the base. There was no way off that base. One way in, one way out, guarded by Marine MPs. We, we were fortunate in that uh, we, we didn't have the same stringent airfield regulations they have after 9-11. Uh, so I think we might have got a better right. shake running through the airfield than going out the main gate. <laughs> So uh, you, you're you're coming in here from Texas. You grew up in Texas, is that correct? 
Well, originally I was born in Misawa Air Base, Japan, but oh. most of my life uh, is from Harlingen, Texas. My, my family's originally from Harlingen. Uh, my dad was in the service, my uncles, my grandfather in World War II. So uh, we have a huge military legacy in our family. And uh, so after my dad uh, got out of the Air Force, we returned back to his hometown and uh, lived here. So uh, listen, Texas, uh, <laughs> right about now I could use some Texas weather. I'm staring outside to a frozen tundra where I relocated. So I just recently retired from the uh, NYPD and decided to move somewhere closer to uh, the North Pole where it freezes up on pretty much all oh, winter wow. long. Most people uh, retire and go to a beachy place, but uh, not me. Uh, <laughs> so uh, down in Texas, you uh, grew up, uh, how was, uh, like what led to your choice to join the Marine Corps? Uh, I mean, was it just because you had family that have always served or was it more like, and by the way, why not the Air Force? Okay, well, well, my, my dad joined the Air Force and my and my older brother ahead of me joined the Air Force uh, a good good four four years or so before I did. So um, the the truth of the matter is I was I was uh, 1997. I was in college skipping class to see my girlfriend. <laughs> so I'm paying to go to college and skipping class to go see her at the high school. And uh, one night we were we were babysitting my cousin. And uh, Dateline had a special about the crucible and becoming United States Marine. And, you know, all joking aside, that that uh, that broadcast convinced me to go down the next day, talk with a recruiter and, and sign up. That's uh, literally how it happened. See, uh, <laughs> me, I went into the recruiting station to uh, go join the Army, okay, against my parents' will. So I get there and nobody's there and a marine comes in the marine recruited from down the hall of course he said can i help you son i said uh yeah i'm just waiting on these guys but you know I'll why don't you have a seat in my office and hang out right <laughs> yeah sure you know thanks i appreciate it you know they're out to lunch they're always eating those guys he says <laughs> you go sit down in his recruiting office and he's got a time magazine right in front of him staff sergeant lee never forget this guy great guy and there he is Inside the magazine is him from the first Gulf War, Scout Sniper, Marine Corps. It's his picture in the magazine. Now, whether or not he put that in there, or if it's the legit, he got me hooked right there, you know. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't have any family that was in. I'm, I'm the first person in my uh, first wormhole to serve for the United States uh, military. My father came from Europe, so uh, and my mother. Um, I don't know how many service members were on the site, but as far as a wormhole, that was the first. But yeah, the uh, recruiter got me waiting for the army. <laughs> waiting for the army. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So hey, that's um, how Marines do it. We're always <laughs> waiting on the army. Yeah, yeah, for real. So uh, you know, you transitioning now from high school, getting into the boot camp. What was your boot camp experience like? First of all, first battalion, second battalion, third battalion. I was got to ask. Uh, second battalion, Golf Company. So our second battalion fox company that's see <laughs> we make the best marines i think isn't it crazy the stuff that you never forget <laughs> right platoon I, yeah 2095 those numbers platoon, burned into my head yep platoon 2002 i yeah i could try to forget i won't forget it just sticks i so, can't remember um, my own phone number but i still remember my boot camp platoon number right so um you know tell me a little bit about your experience at boot camp and i i, I got no complaints i think boot camp was uh, 
contrary to what everybody said, I think boot camp was great. I think it was everything I saw in that Dateline special. Uh, all the training that, that I saw, all the experiences, the slide for life, you know, the bayonet training and stabbing the dummies. You know, it was really... It was really what I wanted, you know. That the, the only thing I can say I didn't like, of course, is the running. I, I'm not not a big runner to this day, but uh, but yeah, everything else was exactly what I wanted. Combat hits, uh, obstacle courses. You know, it was it was like stuff me and my two brothers grew up doing out here in Texas. You know, sport shooting, uh, climbing trees, crossing lakes. You know, looking for animals, shooting snakes as they pop their head out of the water. You know, we. We grew up in a, in, a, in a South Texas environment where being outdoors and, and being a sportsman is, is just kind of part of the part of the environment down here. And everybody kind of takes to it pretty well. So so that was that was no that was no shock for me. I think my biggest fear was never being an active person and being in sports. And so I really thought, like, man, what if I don't make it? I, I told all my friends and my family that I was leaving to the Marines and. You know, heaven forbid, I got to go back to my hometown and tell them I didn't have what it takes. But, uh, you know, luckily I was able to pull through boot camp and, and make it, the, you know, the 13 weeks and, and you know, earn that title. Now, the, the most challenging uh, for me, I would have to say, I agree, is the running. I hate running. I never, and I played sports. I played football, lacrosse, um, and I thought I was in good shape. <laughs> but uh, when you're just running and, it, you know, I don't care how many cadences you sing as you run. That that that's some boring, you know. Like it could get pretty boring, you know. Oh yeah. And it just seems like it takes forever when you're at boot camp because you got the drill instructors, you know, screaming at you. Um, but you know, let me ask you because I never actually fired a weapon until I was in the Marine Corps. Growing up, using uh, like you said, uh, you know, Texas, you know, firing rifles and stuff. Was it easy for you at the range, or was it more difficult? Because they always tell you, forget about everything you know. They want right. you to start from scratch. Did you find that helped or hurt you? I think firing in the past hurt. And and I think, you know, coming from a home where we didn't have specific marksmanship training, you know, we use a lot of what they call Kentucky windage. And in the <laughs> yeah. military, there is no Kentucky windage. If, you're, if your dope is off, you got to adjust your dope to get, you know, get your sights on target. And I think that was a harder part than, you know, trying to aim a little bit above the target to hit center black and they you know when they catch you doing that they you know it gets pretty intense so uh i think actually learning how to battle sight my my weapon and and then keep it on keep it on target you know adjusting for windage uh adjusting for distance i think learning all that was a great experience but i think having not ever really done that before you know basically adjusting where you point the weapon to hit your target is you know that's a, it's a different way of doing things, but of course in the Marine Corps it's a little more effective to adjust those sights and keep yourself dead on. So if you were telling somebody right now who's getting ready to go off to boot camp, who thinks they know it all when it comes to shooting, listen to what they tell you. You would say, based on your. I would, I would say listen to what they're telling you. You know, and and you know it's 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 like everything else in boot camp. It's laid out for you Mickey Mouse style. You, right. You, you got the right. little. The shooter's Bible they give you, it tells you how to adjust, how many clicks, how many, how to make an inference about the distance, the range, the range flags. So it has a lot of guides for you to go off of to keep yourself on target. So on Paris Island, I'm sure you've heard over the years uh, about the sand fleas that we uh, had to endure getting eaten alive. Uh, what would you say would be your version of that in San Diego? 
uh, what was, I guess? The hills. The hills, we okay. Had, we had a lot of hills, you know, um, Mount Mount MF, for lack of a better word, we had Mount MF as our major hill, first Sarge Hill. We had the Reaper. Uh, so any part of completing tests in, in, uh, in Camp Pendleton, where we did our field weeks, was, uh, was with mountainous terrain. Oh, so they ship you up to Pendleton for the uh, training? So, yeah, you do your, your first two-thirds of boot camp at San Diego at MCRD. And then when you do your rifle qual and your field weeks, it's four weeks at Camp Pendleton. So oh. you pack up all your gear, everything in the squad bay, cleaning supplies, and uh, you pack them all up. We put them in these little uh, loading trucks, and then they load us up into the blue the Bluebird buses and take us to Camp Pendleton. It's about 45 minutes, maybe an hour, depending on traffic from San Diego. Wow. So that, you know what? That's something I never knew. And I've served <laughs> the Brick Corps with guys and never, I never realized that you would have to spend, that's a little bit, that's, that could be stressful when you're trying oh, yeah. to, uh, you know, and now you're moving everything and I'm sure the drone structures are really want you to move good on giving you time. <laughs> they want you to pack everything up a certain way. They want you to unpack a certain way. And, you know, so I'm sure they gave you plenty of time to do that. But I think, I think they, they, they kind of lighten up on you a little bit when it's field week because that's when they start to incorporate live ammo and, and, and you know, right. weapons training. So they, they tend to go a little lighter versus the first, the first month and a half is pretty, pretty right. intense. Yeah, I, I do remember them kind of taking it easy once they're handing uh, disgruntled recruits live ammunition and firearms for the first time. Um, after, you know, towards the end, getting through the crucible and everything, I know for me personally, and I'm sure for a lot of others out there that went through boot camp, the EGA getting that Ecoglobin anchor, which I don't even know if you could say EGA anymore in today's world. I guess you can't say that, but Ecoglobin anchor ceremony. It's a rumor I heard. I don't, I, not verified. Um, that ceremony really, really, you know, gets people emotional, myself included. Uh, how, what was your experience when, when you were actually handed that Ecoglobin anchor? I, I think it was the same, and and I'll tell you, I don't want to take away from anybody's experience, but I I remember the you know obviously the great accomplishment and that feeling of self worth from receiving your first Eagle Globe and anchor and earning it on the top of that hill. But I think uh, more importantly, I think was the realization that you were now one of them. You're you know you're a part of this tribe, uh, and you have earned their respect. You know, you're you're no longer all the horrible things they called you for 13 weeks. You're you're now a Marine, and that's what they're going to call you. And so I think I think that was probably a, a, a bigger accomplishment and more of a, an emotional drawing type of, of uh, incident. You know, again, I, I don't want to distract from what anybody else experienced. You know, receiving your first Eagle Globe and Anchor, I still have mine to this day, the original uh, Grim Reaper Eagle Globe and Anchor that I earned when I became a U.S. Marine. Uh, it's, it's always been kept separate from the rest of my military gear. I still have it. Uh, it's in prime condition, has no scrapes, scratches or anything. I'm taking really good care of it. But, uh, I really think the, the biggest sense of accomplishment came from becoming one of them and not, you know, not being, you know, whatever they called us before anymore. Nasty. <laughs> nasty. That is what You're a nasty thing. That's what <laughs> a lot of the words we can't say, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Trying to keep this uh PG, you know, for, for the young ones. Uh, uh yeah, so now transition over to the fleet. I mean, uh my first duty uh you know, well 
minus the fleet. We still had training to go through infantry school, your your school for your job and everything, um, which you were the same MOS as myself. A uh, couple years ahead of me, I came I came uh, and joined you in Japan, uh, right? You were at Iwakuni. And uh, yep. yep, that's where we first met. So uh, yeah, we, we did meet in Iwakuni. Um, Entering the fleet, your first duty station. Was Iwakuni your first duty station? or No, no, I was at Miramar where they filmed Top Gun. Oh, okay. So tell me about your experience entering the fleet as a brand new, were you PFC? Uh, yeah, PFC. Uh, entering the fleet, you know, now now you're a big shot, and then you get around other big shots, and then you realize maybe I'm not that much of a big shot. Not that much of a big <laughs> shot, yeah. That, right? that, that realization came pretty quick. Um, well, it, it, you know, like you say, you say Hollywood Marine, and, and I think Miramar was the epitome of Hollywood Marines. You know, for one, it was the, the home site of the Top Gun movie, and a lot of the stuff from the movie, which we watched heavily in the 80s, was, was still there. The volleyball field where they beat Iceman. <laughs> uh, right. A lot of the bars where Goose and Maverick were singing. You know, the, some of the cliff scenes out in, in, uh, in Pacific Beach. So we got to experience a lot of what we had seen as kids there out in the, out in the, in the San Diego life and community. But actually becoming a Marine was great. It turns out it's, it's not all soldiering, especially in, in our craft, in, in, a, in the military police field. It, it takes on more of a, of a work type of, of setting. You, you get up in the morning, you go to work, you do your shift, you get off, you pop a couple beers with your guys and do it all over again the next day. And then you got two days off, then you got three days on and then the vice versa. So it just yeah, you, becomes like a regular job. Yeah. You work like a, uh, the PMO side of the MP field. And I didn't realize this when I joined up that there was a field side. I got that surprise after I left Iwakuni got sent to Pendleton and I said what is this this is not police work at all you know not at all yeah, totally <laughs> completely different. different well unfortunately I, I I was in the law enforcement capacity at Miramar for four years my whole first enlistment now my second enlistment I, I got shipped out to Iwakuni and in Iwakuni I, I got picked up with CID and so I did criminal investigations for several months and I was fortunate in that uh you know, they liked me around there, and, and uh, I, I had uh, really proven myself at Miramar with a lot of the reporting and a lot of the incidents that we create, a lot of the arrests and apprehensions that we made of civilians and, and service members alike. Unfortunately, uh, they had seen that, I, you know, I was serious about law enforcement. I got picked up into CID, and so I went upstairs with the CID guys. I got to wear civvies, and they made me some makeshift credentials until I could go to CID school uh, back in Leonardwood. But, uh, you know, we got hit from the, from the back by 9-11. And, yep. uh, now, you were there in Iwakuni when 9-11 happened, correct? I was stationed in Iwakuni. It was, yep. uh, you know, middle of I remember that day. 30. I remember that day. I was uh, actually sleeping in the barracks, and my roommate, he was a canine handler. So he was doing canine, and his girlfriend kept calling the room. And I'm like, what do you – it was 3 o'clock in the morning our time, I think it was. Yeah, like, it, was, well, it was late. Oh, dark yeah. 30, I was – I was I like, dude, uh, I'm like, why are you calling constantly? He's not here. You don't know what's going on. You don't know. I said, no. And I like rolled over. I'm like, went back to sleep because I was tired. And then all of a sudden, the banging on the door at like 5 a.m. Everyone's getting up, getting rolling. Everybody's getting up. Yeah. Oh, my God. And then like for the next 
uh, six months straight. It was, you know, I was doing, I was up on a, a Navy boat with a 50 cal, you know, securing the perimeter of the base. And then when I yeah. tried to stay, they said, no, son, you're going over to Pendleton. And I get there to the field unit. I'm like, this isn't what I, what I thought MPs were, you know, this is like combat operations here, you know, first yeah. SSG, you know, prepping, providing routes, you know, route reconnaissance, convoy security, EPW handling, like, you know, I'm like, wow. Yeah. What a shock, you know, and I'm sure when you got there as well, that uh, you felt like a little shock, I guess, from not realizing that there's another side to the MP field. Most people don't realize. You know, working the garrison side for, for the better part of five years and then being dropped into the field side of military police work was uh, was incredibly challenging simply because, and I, I think you, you were there, you might even remember I was heckled a lot because I was already a corporal. I was very close to picking up sergeant, and uh, I had no field experience. So a lot of the uh, the non NCOs in the company were a little hesitant to follow my leadership because I didn't have that experience in the field and I hadn't earned their their trust and respect yet. So it was it was a little bit difficult for me coming in already as a as a as a almost sergeant, you know. Right. And then you got some Lance Corporal telling you how to, you know, no, that's not how yeah, it's done. Or, I right. And you remember old Ricky Loiza. We went out on a desert fire X and Ricky Loiza and I got I know into Ricky, a scuffling in the G10. <laughs> yep. And then Staff Sergeant McDonald had to break the uh, O'Donnell, Staff Sergeant O'Donnell had to take us apart and talk yep. to us. And, you know, yeah, that's, you know, that's old core. We don't do it like that anymore. <laughs> you know, I got to get these guys yeah. to follow me and earn my respect. I'm not just going to roll so, over anymore. Yeah, explain explain that a little bit because uh, you know leadership is a typical thing, and you know as an E four in the Marine Corps, you're given the responsibility that most E sixes, uh, staff NCOs and above, and other services are given. You know you're 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 at that non commissioned officer entry level. You just earned your blood stripe. How how did you take on that challenge in trying to lead field Marines? Well, the the good thing about the Marine Corps is you have a lot of leadership examples. So you know, being, being that I was in a garrison environment, uh, you right away, you learn which NCOs you can trust with which circumstances and which NCOs you can, you know, take advice from on this and that. So I, I think what worked for me was pulling all the things that I found great about my leadership and abandoning a lot of things that I really just, I didn't get the point of, you know, and one of those things is the old, um, I, I, I don't know what you'd, you know, we call them the FF games, you know, playing games. Yeah. So yep. uh, one of those, I never understood that. I never understood how that helped with morale or help with, you know, making Gunny, 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 uh, I don't know if you remember Gunny Young. Yes. Uh, he didn't like my shave job one day and I, and I got to move rocks around the, uh, the you know, outside the basketball court over there, you know, you know. Somewhere there's a picture <laughs> the of me painting rocks for a similar thing. Yeah, so. <laughs> and the rocks were painted when I got there. Yeah, but it, they didn't like the color and they wanted different they colored like rocks. Color. I had to reverse yeah. them. The, the, the red rocks were yellow and the yellow rocks turned red. And right. It was just ridiculous. The games, right? It's unbelievable. But, you know, that's one of the things I didn't get. And and another thing I learned about leadership is, uh, you know, having, having two previous NJPs, <laughs> I learned right away that sometimes paperwork isn't the best way to to get a Marine to follow your leadership. And so I think that's why in that, in that one particular field exercise, I, I got physical with a junior Marine because 
I think that's I think that's a more effective way to earn their trust than to push paper on them and force them out. You know. Yeah. So so that that was just my particular leadership style. It does. I, I imagine it doesn't work for everybody. Some people have to do what they have to do and find what works for them. But I think for me, I think stepping up and saying, hey, look, we're going to you know, we're about to we're about to cross the drink and go into some serious action. And you're going to have to follow my instructions and everybody above you. And I, it doesn't matter where we came from or what we're doing. I'm, you know, I'm in charge until they find somebody better. or I can't walk anymore. So. Right. So that was just the, the particular path of leadership that I chose. I, I tried to be understanding and, and helpful with my guys. And, uh, you know, we took 12 good men out to, to uh, Iraq uh, with Combat Service Port Company 115. And uh, when I separated out and they, they discontinued my stop loss, you know, I still had all 12 men standing with me. So, so that, was a, right. that, was a good, that was a success on my part. I feel like that was, that was a win for me. Oh, without question. And um, I was going to get to the deployment. So deployment to Iraq, uh, they broke our company up into, you know, a couple different Four. CSSC 117, yeah. 11, 115, and then 113. I believe, but right? we had one uh, CSSB 10, the, the big element. Uh, that's right. Yep. Yep. So the battalion, and, um, the CSSB 10, we were the companies. So we supported the three companies. And then the CSSB 10, the battalion was the main element that would they would take all our EPWs from us and they would, you know, resupply our convoys that we were providing security for and, right. you know, keep uh, command and control over us. So, yeah, we, um, we had EOD with us, shock trauma platoon. I don't know if you guys had the same, we yeah, were supporting we the, uh, first, the surgeons with us. First battalion, seventh Marines and, uh, say first battalion fourth, but I'm not, I can't recall, but definitely first battalion, seventh Marines out of 29 palms. We were supporting, um, and EOD, would utilize us quite a bit. Did you guys have EOD as well? We did have EOD. Uh, did they like to take you guys out and uh, provide security for them when they were clearing? Because I felt like we were always yeah, they with would, them. We would, you know, we would collect uh, weapons and munitions, and we would. Uh, they would bring in a, an excavator. They'd dig a big hole in the ground. They'd throw all the munitions in there as carefully as they could, and then they'd wrap it up in dead cord and C4 and blow it sky high. Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah, those guys, those guys love blowing I things up too. I think I might have, have sent you a picture of me holding some of that C4. <laughs> yes, yes, I have it. I do. Um, yeah, so, you know, the deployment's over for you. You were in the stop loss phase. So you All were right. deployed and then they retained you. How did you feel about that? Well, I thought it was good because, uh, you know, one of, one of the milestones that I had for myself in the military was, of course, to go out and experience combat, you know, and fight. And so that was good for me. And of course, another one was become a sergeant. And so, you know, I had hit my two major milestones in the military. And so the only other real thing I wanted to do was, was uh, have a family. So after the stop loss, that's, that was the, the, the next goal was to start a family, have some kids and, and maybe right. put more together as far as roots go. Now, did your uh, father serve a full career in the air force or was it uh I, if I'm not mistaken, he did two two uh, two tours or two he did two terms of service in the air force. Okay. Uh, so he did just as much time as he did. So that was like uh, I actually only did six and a half. Okay. Six and a half. Six total. and a half. I did about six and a half years in the Marines total. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, were they offering shorter enlistments in '97? Well, because of my my two NJPs, when oh, I did, okay, okay. Yep. <laughs> when I did the reenlistment, hey. they wouldn't let me take a full four because they didn't know what know, I was gonna. 
<laughs> what did Chesty say about those NJPs, though, right? That's a, that's Ch the making of a fine marine, I'll tell you. That is NJPs. Should, if you don't get at least make a one, blood stripe for NJPs or, or at least another hash mark or something. They should for sure. Uh, you know, Chesty Puller, every marine knows who he is. Uh, you know, says you ain't a real marine unless you get at least one. So. So I guess you're above an overachiever. You're an overachiever. <laughs> um, <laughs> so getting out of uh, stop loss and transitioning over to civilian life, how challenging was that for you coming out of the Marine Corps and, um, you know, getting that whole, I guess, the, the whole draining the military out of you? Yeah, so 2003, uh, rejoining civilian life, you know, they give you a, a transitioning class in the Marine Corps and they give you a separation physical, and try to prepare you, tell you what to expect. But in the reality, everybody struggles, and deals with it in their own way. And I think one of the I think one of the biggest things that I had a problem with was was uh, honestly not carrying a weapon everywhere I went. Mm. Uh, right. You know, you get so used to it and, and it seems like like a like a real hassle when you have it and you're you're accountable for it and, and you gotta be very particular about how you hold present and store your weapon but then when you don't have it you feel like you're missing something right uh, like you left your keys at home or something right right and so I, I think that was one of the things i struggled with because for for the longest time i i took weapons with me everywhere i went and uh i was very fortunate i didn't get in any trouble i i didn't have a, a, a permit to carry a concealed but you know you do what you do, pray for the best. Right, right. So, uh, so that was one of the things I struggled with was being uh, unarmed. You know, again, it's it, it's it's uh, it's part of your craft in the Marines, and to not have it and come into civilian life and, and, and be missing that key component is, is a kind of a real shock. Uh, that and the you know the lingo, you know, going into into the office and and working a, a normal nine to five. You know, people talk differently. Thing, you know, things are 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 back to what they were, you know, you hit, all of a sudden we got pens again, we have shirts again. Yes. And, <laughs> uh, and uh, it, correct. Marines have a sick sense of humor as well. I mean, we most do. service members do. So trying to adjust that sick sense of humor back into the civilian world where people just give you that look. I'll like tell you, I still struggle with it today. I, even now I'm trying to find the word. <laughs> you'll think something's say. really funny and you'll be cracking up and someone would just stare at you like you should be putting an institution somewhere. You need help. Yeah. <laughs> What's wrong with this guy? Yeah, for yeah real. it happens a lot. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, you have recently um, been, uh, uh, you're with the VFW, is that correct? And you volunteer time there and you joined well, the you know, VFW. It's, it's, it's funny, the, uh, the VFW was waiting for us when we got off the plane in, uh, in California. Really? So they showed up at the PX in, in Camp Pendleton. And they were asking us if we had served overseas. You know, we our uniforms were a dead giveaway. Right. And so they gave us a card. They took our name and information and signed us up for a one-year trial membership with the VFW. And so I took my trial membership card. We went down somewhere in, in uh, the San Onofre area. We found a VFW post, and they gave us a free beer with that card. So, you know, of course, we weren't going to turn away free beer. No. But uh, when the, when the one-year term expired i was already working at the at the post office in my in a, in a town near my hometown in harlingen texas i was working in penitas texas and so the one of the vfw members found me started uh asking about me found out i was a, a war vet and decided he wanted to sign me up so he says if you if you pay half of the dues it comes out to 200 bucks and change 
we'll put in the other half for you, make you a lifetime member of the VFW. And you'll never have to pay anything again. So, so oh, you know, that sounds like a pretty sweet deal. So we did it. And uh, in 2004, I, I don't remember the exact date, but in 2004, I officially jo joined the Veterans of Foreign Wars organization. Uh, never, never really participated in any events or any uh, of their programs. But um, here within the last year and a half, we, we do, me and a couple of Marines that I know, we do our own kind of spur of the moment Marine Corps celebration on November 10th. So every year we pull all the local Marines that we can find and we agree we're going to meet at point A and we all show up at point A and we raise hell. And so every year it gets progressively bigger. I might've sent you some photos. Every year the group grows, we get more and more Marines to join us. And at some point, somebody convinced us to have one of these uh, off the fly kind of Marine Corps birthday balls at the VFW here in my hometown of Harlingen. So I went down there. We, you know, we had a cake cutting. We recognized the oldest, youngest Marine. We, we try to honor all of the traditions of a, of a normal Marine Corps birthday ball without getting all formaled up because, you know, just a ragtag band of guys. Right. And, um, well, I, I don't think those. anybody, I don't think, I don't think anybody could fit in their old uniforms anyway no, these so days. Well, we, we do have one. We do have <laughs> one guy, Purple Heart Rick Line, and he, he's still fit in his blues. He showed up with his, um, this <laughs> is full dress blues. It was it was pretty exciting to see. I think if, I think if you took uh, I think if you took a tally, the percentage of Marines that still fit in their original stuff is like one percent or something, even less than that. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna add to that. Uh, I don't know if you remember or if uh, maybe they didn't do it in Paris Island, but in San Diego, when we take our boot camp photo, you put on a, a Marine Corps dress blue blouse. And yes. the back of it is split open, so they pretty much fit anybody. Yep. And and so uh, so I've already given instructions to my family that I got my blues hanging in the in the closet, and if for any reason they can't put them on me and put me in the casket just to split the back open, and no one's going to know <laughs> the difference. But I want to go yeah. in that suit. Yeah, for sure. That is uh, by far the best looking suit of any service. Let me, you know, I mean, there's no question. No, without that, a question. Yeah. No, without a question. Um, so, so, so down at the VFW, I'm the adjutant. I, I was appointed to the adjutant position, so I'm one of the officers there. Uh, basically, I record all the minutes of our meetings. Uh, whenever somebody makes a motion or we try to approve a new membership, uh, I, I document all the, the ongoings. Uh, we have had a few instances where we have to send uh, important documentation to our members or up to the state or district levels. And so I'll assist the commander in making sure that all those things are handled appropriately. Plus, I work for the post office, so sending stuff in the mail is kind of my expertise. Yeah, there, so, there you go. So that's that's my position there. We we are a nonprofit organization uh, recognized nationwide. I mean, most states and local municipalities have some form or within a certain distance of uh, a VFW chapter. And so uh, our Harlingen VFW was recently recognized as an all-American and all-state post because we've met all the commitments as far as contributing to our community, as far as increasing our membership, as far as raising funds and recognizing all the special military holidays that are out there. Uh, we have made and met all the obligations and exceeded the expectations uh, of some of our peer units and so we were recognized with uh, All-American status, which you keep for the year. And so we're currently working to renew that All-American status for the next year because it's, it's it's kind of a big deal. 
Now, I, I besides the camaraderie aspect of what the VFW can provide a veteran, uh, what else, if, if there's a veteran out there that's been kind of on the bubble of joining an organization like that, what, what else can that organization provide? One of the unique things that the, the VFW provides is, you know, anytime we have a function, it's typically free for all veterans. So if you're struggling and you need, you know, a meal, if we're having a, an event going on where there's food, that's all, that's all free. We don't, we don't charge anything. Um, but like, for instance, we had a veteran who his air conditioner was not functioning well. And so we put a motion to help purchase an air conditioner for this veteran. Um, if the veteran has for privacy, we try to maintain their privacy so that, you know, their business isn't spilled out. But uh, we will allocate funds from our nonprofit and make that purchase for him. One of the things that we refrain from doing is giving cash contributions directly to veterans because, you know, those things can be misused. But if there's a veteran in need, uh, we will usually vote. And if it's approved, we will uh, allocate those items for them. So um, that's one of the ways that we help out um, indirectly financially. We help them not by giving them the cash, but by giving them the items that they need. Um, bedding, you know, we had a veteran who had trouble was struggling with bedding. You know, we, we provided bedding for them, clothing. Another veteran who, uh, unfortunately, he he took his life. So, you know, we, we have a, a house surgeon. We have a veteran service officer. Uh, we also are in communication with other outreach organizations to provide counseling. So that's one of the ways that, that we also contribute to the veteran community in, uh, in providing services to them and their family members. And then, you know, of course, we have a great support group, uh, the auxiliary post, uh, which is typically made up of the spouses and family members of VFW members. It's one of the requirements is that you have to have a active membership in your family in order to be part of the auxiliary. And so the auxiliary, they're the, the, the behind the scenes characters that will cook the food or prepare the plates whenever we have these uh, benefit barbecues or whenever we have a free meal like Thanksgiving, we serve hundreds of plates for Thanksgiving of Turkey and, and you know our auxiliary was there to support us and help us provide those meals to veterans and their families who decided to come out fellowship maybe they didn't have the means at home or they didn't have a family to celebrate with so they came out celebrated the vfw and we provided those meals for them that that camaraderie and, and uh, make, you know make some good holiday experiences with them so those are just some of the ways that we help out it's a lot of ways that's 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 great that the vfw does that and a lot of times that we forget that uh you know people transitioning from the military back to civilian life do come across having problems with that transition uh, alcoholism, homelessness, uh, you know, people go back and forth between jobs. There's always some sort of, uh, you know, problems that people forget what that they deal with. I mean, you enlist in the service right out of high school, most people, right? Nine right. times out of 10, coming right out of high school into the service to serve, uh, not really understanding how much you're giving up and, and what you're giving. And, uh, you know, that's what this podcast is about, is getting people like you on that continue to serve in another capacity after the service, providing support for veterans. Um, that's why I thought it was important to have you come on and talk about that, you know, being with the VFW, because veterans need to know that there are still people out there working to provide that support that is needed. And, you know, there's plenty of other nonprofit organizations and and whatnot, but having the VFW, if all you have to do is just have been in the service to become a member and have access to that. And 
Well, um, we we will we will uh, assist and 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 provide for all veterans. And uh, but but one of the unique categories that's required to be a, a VFW member is that you had to have served in in a conflict. Right. Uh, so so. Even if you're not a member, veteran of foreign wars would be to get right. full so you, you have right. you do have to serve so. on the ground or out at sea if you're in the navy of a, of a declared war in operation. But um, I mean, going back to 2001, now provide services to all, but you don't have to be a veteran of foreign war to be eligible for assistance or help or to come in and, and you know seek some type of uh, counseling or anything. We have our door open to everybody from the veteran community, regardless as to whether they served in combat or not. And we have a veteran service on site who, um, I mean, he's not there 24 seven, but when he's available, he will help with veteran service claims and uh, processing for, for veteran benefits. And that's all free of charge. So, so that's a good thing. A lot of people don't realize that we do have a lot of uh, networking, especially now in the digital era where we can help you find the help you need uh, if we don't have it there, but we do have a, a wide array of assistance for, for veterans in the community. And again, there's no requirement. If you're a veteran honorably discharged or dishonorably discharged and you need assistance, we'll help you as best as we can. And uh, we, we have, in, in my experience, again, I've been with the BFW since 2004. I don't know if any veterans have been turned away and told no. You know, you're not, it's like, it's like Christmas time. You may not get everything you wanted on your list, but we're, we're going to do what we can to, to check off some of those blocks for you and make your life a little easier. So, Well, I want to thank you for your continued service. And ladies and gentlemen, Sergeant Ryan Flores, um, any, any, uh, any social media you want people to follow, anything you want the, as far as following the VFW in Harlington? Uh, the, the Harlingen VFW has a Facebook page. It's uh, VFW Post 2410. Uh, and so that's that's our, our local Facebook page. Uh, it shares some of the accomplishments that we've had. We, we took first, uh, I'm sorry, we took second place this year in our community city parade. And so that was a big accomplishment. We had never placed in one of those events before. So we're getting out there. We're putting a lot of young blood into our VFW and, and, and reviving what, you know, what a lot of us were probably think is just a, you know, a bunch of uh, older gentlemen. We're putting right. some fresh blood into it and, and, and turning it around with this new generation of veterans that have served in combat in times of conflict. So uh, if you've ever considered Go down there, talk with your local commander, uh, and and see maybe you can become a part of that, or or not. But one one thing, if I got a chance to say anything of, of of real substance and value, I'd really like to say to all of our current service members, if you're serving in active duty or you're serving in the reserves, and you're injured, one of the patterns of leadership is to you know suck it up, you know keep going, you know march on. And this is actually a mentality that's going to hurt you down the road. So if you injure yourself or you uh, find yourself unable to continue, it's in your best interest to seek medical treatment with the uh, military branch or the station that you're at and get it documented because, you know, after a certain age, your check engine light's going to come on. And right. it doesn't matter what you tell these people, if you don't have proof that you experience this hardship, you're, you're going to be fighting another uphill battle. So don't suck it up. Don't be the tough guy. You know, we're, we're only human and we get hurt and we, we get injured and you need to get treatment and you need to get, um, 
get documentation and there's no there's no shame in that and so if your leadership tells you oh it, you know just walk it off you know keep on marching or oh you're you know you're a sissy if you do it you know don't don't be intimidated by that type of badgering that's kind of like i said that poor leadership that you want to leave out of your own individual leadership style or or disregard if you're the person in the field and and, uh, and get that treatment because that will help you out substantially when you get older and you realize that some of the injuries you have in adult life were, were probably brought on by injuries from your military service. And again, if they're not documented, you didn't get treatment, it's it's almost impossible to get recognized and get uh, help for those things that you hurt yourself with. So that would I, be my, probably the best advice I can give anybody is uh, to those active service members right now, proudly serving for our flag and serving for our country. If you hurt yourself, don't be afraid to get help because you need it and you're gonna need it more later. That is probably some of the best advice that I've ever heard as far as to active members. You know, something that I always said to myself is like, I wish I would handle my finances better. I wish I would documentation of your injuries and going to the corpsman or going to, you know, just getting things documented because where you are 40, I'm 40 years old now. And my body's broken from all the uh, stuff we did. You know, you do want that documentation and that is absolutely great advice. And uh, I appreciate you coming on to the podcast and discussing it with me. And uh, listen, that that is probably the best advice or best thing that you should take away from this podcast if you are an active service member. Make sure that uh, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you hit that subscribe button. Give us comments, ratings. That helps us go up the charts with the, those podcast catchers. And if you're watching this on YouTube, give a thumbs up, give a like, and comment as well. I uh, want to thank you again, Sergeant Ryan Flores, for coming on and uh, keep keep doing what you're doing. I appreciate. Hey, you know, it. thanks a lot. I really appreciate you having me on here. And you know, if you ever need me to come on or or find some other vets for you with some 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 different stories, I you know, I'm networked in with all the veterans here in my community. Uh, but you know, it was great serving with you. It was you know, it was great going through that experience. And I'm you know, I've always recognized you and 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 all my brothers as 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 my brothers. You know, we we. We went through a lot of stuff together and, and we, you know, we all managed to come out with our heads still, still basically intact for the most right. part. So, right. uh, hey, I'm really glad you thought of me. And, uh, you know, like I said, and I promised on my Facebook page, whenever I, I get into the area, I travel a lot and I've been all over America. Uh, if I ever come into your hometown, uh, I'll, I'll look you up. I'll find you. We'll, we'll, we'll pull some beers off or, or, or something stronger, whatever you got. So if I'm ever up in the Indiana area, I promise to come out and see you. And, uh, you, you know, you can take that to the bank. I appreciate that. And uh, I will hold you to it, my friend. All right. Thanks again. I appreciate it. And uh, this is The Enlisted. Thank you. Thank you.